Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. For the sake of time, when you say we just dive right in, yeah? I have three points for you this morning. Uh, the tension, the treasure, and the tension of the treasure, which at that point will take a communion offering. The tension and the treasure, and then the tension of the treasure with one big idea. Walking in faith requires tasting and trusting. Kind of, kind of continue this theme that uh, Tim Gray set up for us last week. Walking in faith requires tasting and trusting. Let's start with the tension, shall we? The tension. If you're ready, say ready. ready. All right, she's ready. Thank you. Last week, uh, Tim Gray preached a, a really uh, great sermon out of Hebrews 6. And so uh, I would ask that, I was going to ask if you all remembered, but as I looked at the camera, about 50% of y'all weren't here, okay? And so guest speaker showed up. Everybody had something better to do, I guess, is what happened. And if you thought, they're like, you're going to talk about that? I'm like, yeah, because they invited their moms to service, and it's something their mama needs to know about them. You know what I'm saying? So love our guest speakers well. Um, Tim Gray set up this incredible um, sermon last week out of Hebrews chapter 6, and he kind of laid out this, the beginning of the, the, uh, the tension that we see here in the text, which is where this first point comes from, that there is a tension that the author of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but we know that he's building this tension for us. And so last week, if you would have heard what he said last week, then Hebrews 6, 4 through 7 uh, says the following. They're going to put it up for you. It says this, for it is impossible. Somebody say impossible. For it is impossible, okay? It's a strong word there, church. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible, he says, to restore them again to repentance. Why? Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, actually hurting themselves, and they're holding Jesus up in contempt, it says. That means they're lording themselves over the Lord, they're being the judge, over the ultimate judge. Verse 7 then continues, for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing, and then the other land that does not is destroyed. And so what the author is saying here is this, it is impossible. That's pretty clear, yeah? It is impossible in the case of those who have, and then he lists out a few things for us. He said it's impossible for those who have felt the power of God, who have been in God's presence, who have tasted the goodness of the kingdom of God, like maybe you came in here on a Sunday and you experienced worship and prayer and you felt yourself moved, right? You were tasting the goodness of God. It's impossible, he says then, that those who have seen the Holy Spirit have actually seen the Holy Spirit move within the body of Christ. Maybe you saw someone confess sin. Maybe you saw someone confess something audacious that they had been doing. Maybe it was adultery or lying or addiction or some other form of abusive behavior. He said it's impossible for those who have seen these sorts of things. It's impossible to restore those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God. 
Like even, maybe you come in and, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I got to preach something and you felt moved by that. Maybe you tasted a sermon. Maybe right now you're tasting a sermon, but you've not yet trusted is what the author says. He says that it is impossible then to restore those who have simply only tasted the goodness of God, but they have not yet put their trust in the goodness of God. You guys tracking with that? It is impossible to restore you again to repentance. Why? Why would it, how could it be impossible? Is God not good? Is God not powerful enough to redeem someone? Can't God redeem anyone that God wants to redeem? And you can say yes and amen. He can and he will and he loves the idea of redemption, but it is impossible, he says, to restore those who keep holding Jesus in contempt. That means they, they've come in professing Christians, professing with their mouth, not believing in their heart, and they're trying to lord themselves over the Lord, or they're trying to save themselves over the Savior, or they're trying to be the judge over the ultimate judge. There's not true, genuine confession and repentance. So he said it is impossible to restore them because they never had it. They never had faith. They just came in looking for magic tricks, wanting to feel a certain way. It says it impossible to restore those who have tasted but have not trusted. This is those who have used Jesus to get something that they desire, but they have not submitted to Jesus as both Lord and Savior. We've been talking about this for a couple months now, haven't we? Kind of this theme we've been running through. You can have Jesus up high or Jesus down low, but you need to have him in both. Or you can try to submit to Jesus as Jesus as Lord or Jesus as Savior, but you have to submit to Jesus as Lord and Savior. You do not get to pick and choose. He is both or he is nothing. And so then, what are they doing? They are just, these people he's mentioning here, they're just kind of coming to get a taste, right? Like whenever um, things fall apart, they just kind of want to get, they get a taste, or whenever family gets difficult, and maybe family was their idolatry, right? They're the, that's the idol of family or children, kiddos, and, and that's not working, and it's not stroking their ego, and it's not giving them the identity that they want, right? We have a stage lined with kids up here. How quickly do kids become our idols? And yet then they don't provide for us the thing that we desire most, and then what will we do as parents? In those moments, now I'm going to go pray. Now it's time to read the Bible. Now it's time to pursue community. He's saying that's only tasting. You're not trusting in the midst of difficulty. You're just tasting. Does that make sense still? Sorry. Hopefully that's clear. This is the tension of the text. This is why it's the first point is the tension. I hope you see that tasting, though, is necessary because there is a tasting now that leads to trusting. You need to taste to be able to move into uh, trusting. Before we went to uh, Mexico uh, last week, went to this mission trip in Monterey, uh, Mexico, I asked that you would pray that we would all come home safely. So thank you for your uh, prayers. We did all come home safely. Somebody must have prayed that, that we would eat incredible food while we were gone because the Lord answered that prayer for sure. Amen, he says. So we had, man, we had breakfast tacos. We had lunch tacos. We had dinner tacos. We ate late night dinner tacos at 11.30, 12.30, 1 o'clock. In the morning, I thought I was in heaven, church. There was a tasting that we had, and it got to the point of whenever they were like, hey, you got to try this, you got to try this. We're like, anywhere you want us to go, right? We're going to go. We moved not just from tasting, but to what? To trusting. They took us to this um, restaurant. I just got to share this. Church, I thought I died and went to heaven. They had hamburgers there, 
And they were all named after, oh, so good, reformed pastors and theologians. So it was like the Luther, the Calvin, the Whitfield, the Spurgeon. I was like, oh, Lord, take me home. I've, I've come undone before the Lord. Like, it was so good. They had a sign that said, burgers of truth on the wall. It was so funny. There was a, but there was a tasting when they were like, you've got to try the Spurgeon. I was like, he's my favorite. And so we had it. There was a tasting that led to trusting. He's still tracking with that. Psalm 34, 8 says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, King David says. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. But then he continues, right? Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So he's not just tasting, but he's also seeking refuge. He's trusting that the Lord is also good, right? King David would invite us, bid us, I believe, come and taste, come and see, come and experience, and also kind of move into, now we've got to trust, Have you found your refuge in Christ? That's the difference between tasting and trusting. Jesus himself in John 6, he's talking about the the crowds that were following him and all they wanted was magic tricks. They just wanted tasting. They wanted to come to a tasting, but they didn't want to trust. In John 6, 24 through 27, he says this, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus, not because they trusted him, but because they were tasting, verse 25, when they found him, Jesus, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And he's actually doing like a kind of a double meaning here in the text, contextually speaking. He's saying, you're, you're coming to me not just because you saw signs, but because you tasted, literally, they were there among the 5,000 plus The fishes and loaves, they tasted. Then he continues, though, verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, right? All that you taste can go away from you, but all the one that you trust in will never leave you, right? Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, amen? For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And so he's saying, you've tasted, you've seen, but it wasn't the miracle. It wasn't just the tasting. He's kind of in this moment saying, it was me. Like, I'm the one, I'm inviting you through this tasting. But there has to come a moment where you trust and you stop leaning in so heavily to maybe your emotion or to your intellect or to some experience that you think this time together is going to bring. Say, no, everything good that you experience in this life, anything good worth tasting is only meant to lead you to trust, to trust in the Lord. The crowds have seen the miracles, he said, but it was not the miracle, it was me that you seek after. Oh, church, if you find yourself tasting anything good, let me beg you, as King David would, taste all that you can, but know that you've only been given something to taste because you've been given someone to trust, and his name is Jesus. Jesus says here, you might not realize it, but it is him, and the reality is this, man, the emotion that you might get from here, like we laugh a little, we cry a little by the power of the Spirit, it's going to fade. It'll fade. Not every Sunday is Mother's Day, right? There's a reality there. The Sunday gathering that we experience now, it's going to end. Lord willing, I'll get done on time for you today. It will end. We will not have lunch together. Everything that we love to taste is going to come to an end. But there is a real Jesus. And he says, hey, it all points to me. Everything that you enjoy in this life is simply pointing to someone better. Let me ask you, have you allowed your tasting to lead you to trusting? Have you allowed your tasting to lead to trusting this morning? A tasting and only tasting then actually does not allow you to trust 
in Jesus as Lord and also as Savior to keep running the theme we've been hitting for the last couple months now. If all you do is taste what that reveals about what you believe about the gospel and what you believe about Jesus is that you make and I make a better Lord and a better Savior than Jesus does. And so if all you're going to do is taste, then you're going to taste Jesus only whenever he's up high. You're going to taste him as Lord. And you might even say some things like, hey, Sunday is where I get my feel. Or of course I believe in Jesus. And one day I'll be with him in the kingdom of God. Well, that's a really shallow understanding of biblical, gospel-centered Christianity. If all I'm doing is tasting and going to Jesus and saying, hey, he's worth worship. He's worth this. He's worth that. But I'm not actually turning and modeling that in my life, it reveals I don't actually trust him as Lord. I just want to taste him as Lord in hopes that I get into the kingdom of heaven. At the same time, you can then taste him only down low and you'll kind of taste him as savior, as we said. You kind of taste him as a Jesus is in the dirt with you, in the mud with you. And if you're only tasting, you're not trusting, then you will continue to look for the miracle. You'll continue to look for something to kind of make you feel good, something to stroke your identity, maybe your ego a little bit. And what happens in that scenario we could kind of play out is, let's say you come in here on a Sunday and uh, Pastor Jeff, who's up here leading so faithfully with the team, like maybe the songs aren't emotional enough. And so they don't kind of move you the way that they, that they should be moving you in that moment or so you think. If you're only tasting, then you're only looking and saying, hey, what can I receive from this worship experience instead of what can I contribute to this worship experience? Lord, I trust you even when I don't feel you. There's a difference. You see that difference. That's why it requires both tasting and trusting Jesus both and as Lord and also as Savior. If all we do is taste, right, then we're not treating Jesus as the bread of life. We treat him more like a buffet. Like we just kind of come in and, hey, Jesus, I need a little bit of this for a taste and something's difficult and I need a taste of that and this is hard now in life and so I need a taste of that. But what about whenever there's moments of celebration? What about whenever there's moments of joy in your life? Do you still go back to the same buffet and actually give back to the Lord and say, thank you? Thank you for all that you've done. There's a difference between tasting and trusting. Jesus thinks you think it's the miracle that brings you back. You think it's the Sunday gathering that brings you back or the worship music or if if God would so allow the preaching by the power of the Holy Spirit, but it's not. The reason you feel a longing to come here and be united together is because there's a real Jesus that is worth tasting and also trusting. We're still together on that, right? Jesus invites all of it for you to come in your sorrow, for you to come in your sadness. But I also want to bid you here, man, he loves to experience joy with you. He loves to experience celebration. So even on a day like Mother's Day, when there is both sorrow and celebration, there is a real Jesus that has tasted and seen exactly what you're going through. And he's worth trusting in. So the invitation then is to go to him, to see him, to experience him. As we say at Heights, to look and see his face. Seek his face before you seek his hand. See him as beautiful, and he is, and not just as useful as sometimes we may. So if you only taste and you never trust, you'll only treat him like a buffet, not like the bread of life. Here's the the damning thing about that, and we'll get into this more in a minute. If all you do is go to Jesus when you think you need something, you'll never enter into experiences that actually allow you to profess trust in him. Because we would never choose suffering, would we? We would never choose sorrow. We would never choose sadness, right? And so he gives us what we need as a good father. That's part of the treasure, second point. Second point here. Hebrews 6, 9 through 12. We're going to need 9 and 10. We'll camp out for a second. 
Hebrews 6, 9 and 10. Though we speak in this way, okay, listen to him now. This is the part I'm supposed to preach on, okay? Though we speak in this way, he says, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. As I said just even this morning, just contemplating this text, like I find it worthwhile to take a moment and just look at the word beloved. Like, do you know what Jesus had to endure for this author to be able to call us his beloved? I'm talking about millennia and millennia, thousands of years, missional strategy to be able to unite us together in faith so that this could be pinned for us 2,000 years later to look at. For some of you in the room, man, this might be the best word a father's ever spoken over you. Beloved. It's worthwhile to just take a minute and sit in it. On your best day and on your worst day, he says, beloved. That's only because of the power of Jesus. Taste that and trust and see that he is good. Verse 9 again. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And so the author of Hebrews here kind of hits us with a little bit of a, I don't know, I call it an emotional whiplash. He kind of goes from like, it's impossible, it's impossible, they're going to be burned, but not you. You're like, whoa, where do I fit into the equation, right? Am I beloved? Am I burned? I don't, I don't know where I fit in this thing, right? And, and yet, there's just this reality where he's saying, man, there are many in the church who have only tasted, but they're not trusting. And then he looks at this kind of this beautiful hug he gives to the church body here in the book of Hebrews and by extension then to us. And he says, oh, but some of you, beloved, oh, the way you love, the way you serve, the way you visit, the way you put yourself out there, there is evidence of your salvation and the way that you're loving other people. You are loving as you've been loved. You've been forgiving, forgiving as you've been forgiven. He said, beloved, this is good. This is for you. Is an encouraging word from him. And it is important then to note then that the author, I had them put this on the screen for me, that the author is saying their work is evidence of salvation, but it is not the means of their salvation. Are we clear today? Right? The, their work is evidence of salvation, but it is not the means of their salvation. What I mean by that is your good works don't get you into the kingdom of heaven. Right? Jesus is who invites us into the kingdom of heaven. It's his good works given over to us. The Father sees us through the beautiful work of the Son. And upon, we taste that and we see that it's good. And then we take a step forward then and we do get to trust. By grace, we get to trust and believe that Jesus is worth trusting, our whole, in trusting our whole entire lives over to. So he's not saying, hey, you did a really good job. And because you worked so hard and you worked so faithfully and you've done all this incredible things, you now get, ex you get salvation good job you did it he goes no Jesus has bought your way into the kingdom this is what we've heard in Hebrews right but he's saying but the way that they work is evidence of salvation it's important to note because what you can hear in here is that the pastor said I need to do more and try harder that's not what I'm saying that's a religious mindset that's a legalistic mindset that will only leave you tasting but not trusting not trusting the Lord anyway but trusting yourself as your own means for salvation are we still together so it's important that we take a moment to step out there and just kind of say, hey, pay attention to what the text is saying. The author is talking to this church, saying your salvation has been revealed in your good works, right? Not due to your good works. Well, what were they doing? What was going on? What's the evidence of that? How can we know? Well, he continues then a few chapters later in Hebrews chapter 10, and he says what their good works 
word, how this treasure led them to this incredible work. Check this out. I love this text. It's so fun. Verse 32 says this, but recall the former days, okay, back in the day. He's like, hey, guys, remember back in the day? Recall the former days. Uh, after you were enlightened, after you come to faith, listen here, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Pay close attention to that, church. It was after they came to faith that life got more difficult for them. That's worth noting, too. Verse 33, sometimes then, what happens? Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, cancel culture all over them. Sometimes being partners with those so treated. Verse 34, listen to this. For you had compassion on those in prison. Listen, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How do you know if you're tasting or trusting? That's how you know if you're tasting or trusting. Like these cats are running up in their homes, stealing their stuff, joyfully being plundered. And they're like, oh, I have a treasure that far exceeds anything you could take from my house. Like I have been given an inheritance that is sealed in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, salvation more precious than gold. Take that TV. Like could you imagine like that's what it would have been like, joyfully plundered. That's the next tattoo for you, joyfully plundered. We can go together. We'll go get it together. Now somebody's going to get it and be like, well, my, well, mom, my pastor said, <laughs> uh, for you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession. Come on. An abiding one, one that will not leave. Verse 35, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. There it is again. This is treasure. He's kind of building this out. Later on in Hebrews, verse 36, for you have need of endurance, right? Because they're being plundered joyfully so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. There's three times in chapter 10. We're in six, but in chapter 10 over here where the author is calling, recalling, hey, keep your eyes fixed. Stay transfixed. There is a promise that's coming. There is a treasure that is coming. This is the thing that he's mentioning then for us. In chapter 6, we saying, hey, you were enlightened. You came to faith. You immediately got hit with trials. You had all these things happen, happen to you, and you experienced them with great joy. Do you know that in Christ's church, there is a joy that is unattainable anywhere else? Like, how do you know if you're moving from tasting to trusting? It's whenever you're sitting in the midst of great and incredible turmoil and suffering, and somehow still there is a speck of joy in your mind. Like that's only from the Holy Spirit. They were joyfully plundered, right? Because they had not only tasted, but they had also what? Trusted, right? Trusted in what? This better treasure, this better possession, an abiding one, he says three different times. What is the treasure? What is the promise? Well, if we look back now at Hebrews chapter six, he said in there, the author said, the things that belong to salvation. Well, what are the things then that belong to salvation? Let me remind you this morning. How about this? How about a home that never fades? about a people that only know what it's like to joyfully worship the Lord for millennia to come, for 17 billion years. That's what they do. They worship this Jesus. What about just a Jesus forevermore that sits on a throne with an angelic host around him where he has 10,000 times 10,000 seraphim angels lit ablaze, shouting out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty forevermore. It says their wings are gonna shake the foundations of the earth. That's what they have to look forward to. Can you picture life without death? Do you know, like, we don't even have a framework for this sort of a reality. Like, all we know is life with death. Spoiler, for as beautiful as those bouquets are gonna be for you, we got, what, five days? And they're all dead. Just sitting out on the island, dead, right? 
Happy Mother's Day. And so, but am I right? Like, there is no context for us in this world that we can imagine life apart from death. And yet, what has been promised to us here in the text, if we read the book of Revelation, is that we get invited into, I would even say ushered into, this treasure, this beautiful thing of salvation, is that we get to have an eternity in the absence of death. Right? To quote C.S. Lewis, everything that you have ever feared in your life will simply become untrue in that moment. Can you, you, don't, you can't fathom that as a reality. Right, to quote uh, Tim Keller, as I quoted when we were in the Revelation series, he says, there's a, a day coming where everything will get newer and newer and newer and newer and newer and more beautiful and more glorious and more profound and more and more and more because you have the complete and total absence of death. Right, if we all left this room and we never came back in this room again, everything in this room would deteriorate because we live under the effects of the fall, the curse of sin. Right? You can never touch anything in the room, and it would just deteriorate, right? And so what is the treasure? What is the gift? And it is this reality where we've been invited into this kingdom where you could leave this room alone, and it would just get more and more and more beautiful, more and more and more glorious. Let that rack your brain when you go to bed tonight. And so this is the, the gift. This is the treasure, right? And it's only possible because of Christ, not just tasting, but also then in uh, trusting. And so this week I was um, uh, talking with Erin Cranston, who's our director of operations. Uh, she's the one that got you all the flowers that are going to die in five days. And tell her thank you for her hard work. Okay, tell her thank you. Well, we were talking, Tim Gray and I uh, were talking. If you would have been here last week to meet him, you'd know who I'm referencing right now. Tim Gray and I were talking to her. We have cameras. Just because we're in Mexico, don't mean we can't see y'all, you know. Tim Gray and I were talking to her about her role uh, as a director of operations. And he was just asking her, uh, some really good questions about how she's doing as a woman and so on and so forth and how she's doing this role. And as he asked her about her role, um, she responded really well. I was going to use it for an illustration, so I'm still going to share it, but then she gave me a better illustration. And she said, as for my role, I don't really know what my role is supposed to feel like. And then she said, I came on staff during COVID, which think about all the things of COVID. I came on staff during COVID. While we were continuing to grow, by God's grace, we never stopped growing during COVID, uh, in the midst of a capital campaign, and while we were moving into a new building. So she came in in utter chaos. And then she said, my role is chaotic and always changing. And I wanted to use that as an illustration here in light of the treasure, because the early church, as it began to boom and, and blossom, that's all they knew. The early church was birthed into a season of chaos and torture. Hopefully she doesn't feel like that, but intense persecution, right? Like, we don't take advantage of her in that way. And so... But that's, that's like a good illustration. But then she gave me a better illustration without me telling her even what I was preaching on. And she sent me this as a text message. And she said, I trust that the Lord is using me in unexpected ways and continues to remind me to set at his feet. I typically thrive in chaos, but I've also never felt more conquered than I have over the past three years. Quote, I have tasted and seen his goodness and continue to rely on his will for me. Dude, that is a, that's a bomb mom right there. The, the, that's a real life in the heart of the church scenario where this very godly, faithful woman has said, man, I have not only tasted, but I'm continuing to rely, to quote King David, seeking refuge in, to quote Hebrews here, trusting. Right? That's what it looks like to move from tasting to trusting. You cannot do that if you do not behold Jesus as the treasure that's been promised to you. 
Right? You don't just taste Jesus to get Jesus. Man, once you taste Jesus, you get everything, you begin to, which then ignites in you a trust, right? That's what the author is inviting us into. He's inviting us into kind of ushering us into this reality that Jesus is the only treasure that will ever satisfy us in any way. All of our deepest longings will be met in and through Christ. And as you then begin to step into difficult situations, like Aaron could have ran at any point in the last three years, and we would have gave her a hug and told her strong work and good job. But she didn't. She has stayed and she's remained faithful, man, in the midst of a lot of growth and a lot of chaos and a lot of the things that we've allowed, that, we, that God has allowed to happen here. She's maintained integrity in that. That's only possible if you taste and see and then you move into trusting. You still tracking with me? But if you never step out, right, she could have just bailed. If you never step out, if you never step in, if you never serve, if you never step into the things that we invite you into, you'll just stay at the buffet kind of eating things you think you need, but they're not bringing you any value, right? This is why we invite you into missional community. You're like, oh, I don't have the night. I don't have the time. We're, we're busy. We have all these excuses. It's because you're really just standing at the buffet saying, God, I want to give off the illusion that I trust you, but I'm just going to taste what I think is going to meet my needs, And in so doing, you never step into suffering. You never step into discipleship. You never step into a difficult conversation with someone. You don't allow the gospel to rub you the wrong way. And then in 10 years from now, you're still reading Hebrews 5 where he says, you've become dull. You're like, of course I'm dull. How can this be? And it's like, because you've not used any of the treasures he's given you. All the things he gives you to point you to him, you just kind of push away and you're standing over there by yourself just eating what you think you need. He says, no, I'm the bread of life. Feast on me. That's what he says. That's free. But it's true. Yeah. This is what he's saying, okay? If you do not step out, you will not continue to grow, right? This is, I was going to say, like, this is why we invite you to serve. We don't need you to serve. But it turns out we do, and it heights kids. And so, <laughs> hey, we need 36 more volunteers and kids. Okay, for real, this is real talk here. This is for Facebook Live to hear too. 16 more trusting families and we'll outgrow Heights Kids, which is celebratory and also brings a level of suffering, <laughs> if I'm honest, right? I mean, 16 more committed families might be going to three services, so fast and pray about that, right? They need 36 more people back there to, to have a full roster for 150 kids that we meet on a weekend in light of Mother's Day. Y'all are fruitful and multiply. Now we need you to... Sh- Step in and be fruitful somewhere else, okay? It's Heights Kids, all right? There it is. Taste and see that he's good back there. Hey, you want a position to trust? Let's just keep talking about it. Go serve in Heights Kids. <laughs> all right, I'll stop. This is what he's inviting us into, man, just calling us out into deeper and deeper uh, waters. Last point I have for you then is this, um, the tension of the treasure. The, the team can come on back in here. I'm gonna just read this and close this out with communion offering. The tension of the treasure. Verse 11, we'll close this out. And we desire each one of you uh, to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. That's a beautifully written scripture, right? And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. And then verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, which he's referring back to chapter five when he called them dull. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. And so the author is calling them back to look at Hebrews chapter five, verse 11, where he said, you have become dull. You have 
lost some of your light. You have become dull of hearing. This should be easy to explain to you, but I know that you're dull because I'm looking at your works, and while your works are not a means of salvation, they are evidence of salvation. And so there's this call, and he says, it's not, I mean, I just need you to get, like, this is a plea of a pastor to his people. And he's saying, like, that's not what I want for you. That's not what the Lord has for you. That's not what he's encouraging you into. He doesn't want you to remain stagnant or to remain dull, but rather be imitators of those who have come. Like, in effect, he's saying, hey, don't ride the coattails of a bunch of other people's sacrifices. Is that really fun? Is it really joyful? Does it feel like mission? To which we would all say what? No. He says, no, but be imitators of those so that you can finish well, have faith, trust in the promises. And in that, then, we see the tension of the text. And in that, you can stand with me. The tension of the text here as we move into communion and offering is this. And there's only one who can perfectly model and walk out both tasting and also trusting. Uh, and his name is Jesus. Okay? We got one sermon every week. We tricked you all into coming back. Or you've tasted and trusted, I presume. There's only one who perfectly tastes and perfectly trusts and is Jesus Christ. And the way that we know that to be true is because in his tasting, he didn't just go taste what was easy for us, did he? No, he tasted living the perfect life because we could not live the perfect life. And he tasted death as he went to the cross, right? Tasted and saw that his father was good and it led him to tasting of death as he went to the cross. Uh, then he tasted new life again in the resurrection Right, so we see in, in his work, right, is the evidence of Jesus' faith, both his tasting and his trusting, that he relied solely on the work of his father. For it was his father who called him to come, and he came and walked out that perfect life. And it was his father who sent him to the cross, and Jesus stood in the garden, both tasting and, uh, and trusting as he's trembling and sweat, like drops of blood are coming out of his face. He's so terrified in that moment. And he, said, he asked the father, is there another way? And there could have been a thousand different ways, but God said, no, like this is the only way the covenant can be made and this is the only way people can come to faith and you are the one that's gonna model what this is, not just walking out in perfection, but also taking the death that they deserve. You're gonna have to taste death so that they can taste life and you're gonna have to trust me that this is the only way so that they will trust that this is also the only way. You need to know that the father has not called Jesus to do anything not called you to do anything that Jesus himself had not yet already done for you. And so the plea of the text is to taste and to trust. And you stand there and you go, but how do I do that? Well, it's not to do more and try harder. It's to simply go sit with Jesus and say, God, I choose a lot of things over you all the time. Could you help me today to trust that you're better than everything else? Even if you don't believe the words as they're coming out of your mouth, just go get alone with them and sit at his feet and say, God, I'm trying right now to taste you, but God, you feel so distant for so long. God, help me come back into your presence. Just give me a taste, a presence that leads to, to trusting. And so for those of us that are saints, uh, to get to partake in communion offering, what's beautiful about those two things is that they put us in, in a position and in an opportunity to both taste uh, and trust. And so for those of you like to give during this time, as you give of your offerings, your tithes and offerings, that's a, it's an avenue, it's an avenue by which you get to taste for sure, but you also then have to trust that the Lord will provide. And as you come forward here in a moment and you take communion together, my gosh, it's not just some religious opportunity, church. You get to literally like take in Christ, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. You get to literally taste and see his goodness. And as you take communion in, man, it begins to form and reform you and reveals in you, man, I need to trust you. And so this is why Paul says, whenever we read 1 Corinthians to 
to confess before we come, not to partake of communion and do so with a hardened heart, lest we have a harder time believing the gospel. And so today, don't just let today be another religious opportunity for you, church. Like, don't just taste out of obligation, but rather come to the table here in a moment because there's no one else worth trusting than Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then verse 26, we read every week, but listen to it. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Look, communion is not a religious event. That's not why we do it. It's a redemptive event. It's an opportunity to come forward and say, I don't have it all together, but man, I need you. And in so doing, as we take in communion, it reminds us then of his second coming and a banquet that we've been invited into. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That sounds a lot like trusting to me, amen? Let me invite you today to both taste and see, but also trust. Come forward when you're ready.